0: This week, I'm super excited to be bringing you a conversation between myself and Mr. Superprime, Daniel Daggers. Daniel is one of the most respected and highly trusted advisors when it comes to Superprime property. And the fact that he's racked up over £4 billion worth of sales in his career goes to show you. But Daniel is only just getting started. And as we dive into this conversation, you'll hear his story that comes from humble beginnings. The resilience, the endurance, taking a chance, and the importance of social media and building a brand. But we also talk about the importance of self-belief and having confidence in what you do. There's a lot of value to unpack in here, and I can't wait for you to hear more. Let's get into it. Thank you for coming on today. I'm very excited to uh, be able to sit down and have this conversation with you. Um, You know, I've followed your journey on social media for quite a while. Um, So to be able to finally sit down and, and be talking about your journey and sort of what ne- what comes next is quite exciting for me.
1: Well, that's great to hear. Thank you. <laughs> Appreciate it.
0: I guess let's start right at the beginning um, and give people a bit of mm. background and context into who you are um, and what you do.
1: So I'm Daniel Daggers. I'm currently 41 years of age. But I don't look it. Um, <laughs> at least that's what I say. Um, I am a born and raised Londoner um born in uh, Paddington um St Mary's Hospital and uh raised in Westbourne Grove for three years then in uh Maida Vale for another seven or eight years and then uh and then St John's Wood and then other places and uh and I, I had a amazing upbringing um thankfully had both my parents around and um My mother's a Yemenite-Israeli, moved to the UK from my father, and my dad's an East London white guy, Um, and and I had a really mixed um, sort of um, mixed cultural upbringing with my sort of my mother's um, Middle Eastern genes and my dad's East London attitude, so um, um, and personality, I should say. Um, And that that, that was really it just didn't have, uh, didn't have anything that I really wanted to get into except for being a professional footballer, like a lot of other kids in the UK, further afield. And uh, I think my dad intimated on multiple occasions that I probably didn't have enough to get there. Um, I tried to make it, wasn't good enough. I had, uh, I believe I had the technical skills and the brain for it, Uh, but I just wasn't prepared to smash into people and hurt people and at the time, growing up, it was about how big you were and how fast you were and how strong you were and all that sort of stuff. Technique wasn't really that important. <laughs> um, it really wasn't, dude. It really wasn't. Um, and then, uh, and then, I was studying. wasn't particularly strong at school, and and then fell into the work environment quite literally, actually.
0: So, when you say you fell into the work environment, what what was it that happened? What was it? Was it a case that you sort of? fell first into property or was there anything that came sort of before that
1: no so as a, as a Jewish boy growing up in London if you're not very good at school you just went into real estate because um that's really a cultural aspect of um of the Jewish people I suppose is that uh the kids if they don't have much of a or a strong education that will push them into being a doctor or a lawyer or accountant or anything like that, that sort of profession, we just fell into real estate and we'd either do property development if we had the funds um, and was able to do that, or you would just become an estate agent. So I wanted to be a professional footballer. That wasn't going to happen. I broke my collarbone. That was the sort of nail in the coffin. At the same time, I was studying a GMVQ in business because um, I didn't qualify to take A-levels because um, I didn't have the right grades for GCSEs. I was told practically I wasn't stupid. Enough, I was too stupid or I wasn't clever enough. It was one of the two. Um, and I did a GMVQ in business and it was like turning a light on. All of a sudden I, I could understand why people would study something because you could implement it in your in your working life. And if you did well at it, you would make money. And that sure. made a lot of sense to me. Whereas in, I knew I wasn't going to be an astronaut or... or Studied physics and learning about um, Saturn didn't just didn't make any sense to me, and I and I in my subconscious switched off. So we're trying to make it as a professional football. That wasn't going to happen. Um, and um, studied GMVQ became business. Part of that was to do a two week work experience. Went to a, an office in a Bell. My dad knew this little estate agency called Vickers, and I and I worked there for two weeks and licked a hell of a lot of stamps and made one coffee. <laughs> because uh, i made such a bad i'll tell you why i made such a bad coffee because i've never made a coffee before in my life i made such a bad coffee that they never asked me to make a coffee again <laughs> so that's one of my biggest tips for anyone starting in business um so i worked there for two weeks then went back to to, to study the course um did well at it and then went to study surveying in neasden and I knew pretty quickly that that wasn't for me understanding or, you know, the bricks and mortar element from a physical capacity wasn't wasn't that interesting. I broke my collarbone and and uh, and then I just went out, um, gave up studying, said to my parents I wanted to earn a living and get some independence. And I didn't know what I wanted to do. My dad was a kitchen designer, so he'd go around to people's homes and he'd measure their kitchens and then he'd redesign them. So I went with an arm in a sling and I'd help my dad, you know, measure up some kitchens. And then he came home one day and said, uh, "said uh, Danny, because some people know me as Danny." "Said Danny, old Stephen Vickers from Vickers and Company asked about you." Uh, and I said, "Okay, well, what did he say?" He was the boss of the company I worked at for two weeks, and he said, "What, what did he say?" He said, "Oh, well, they're looking." for someone to replace the agent there who's just recently left. And he asked whether or not you'd be interested in having a job. So I said, yeah, sure, why not? I didn't have any other opportunities. Um, You know, in life you're told that you're not good at a lot of stuff, right? Uh, Particularly if you're not good at school, you, you are told, you're reminded every day whenever you're doing an exam or, you know, they're benchmarking with any grades, so I, d- I didn't really feel that I had much of an opportunity, right? So I had a phone interview with Stephen Vickers and he asked me, you know, what's really important to me? <laughs> like I said, making money. And he said to me, that's the wrong answer. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> but he gave me the job anyway. And I remember walking in one Wednesday morning, I think it was a Wednesday morning, middle of the week. And uh, Grace let me in, made sure I got there on time. It was like a 10 minute walk from my house. And, um, and then he came in at 10 o'clock. Grace was gorgeous as well. So it was like, oh wow. And then, uh, and then I, walked in the, I walked in the office and, and um, about an hour later, Stephen came in and he literally sat me at the desk and said, there's the phone, there's the card box full of applicants, You know, people looking to buy a property. There's the drawer full of details. So paper descriptions of properties. There's the fax machine, there's the kitchen, there's the toilet, get going.
0: No wow. computers,
1: nothing. <laughs> and and you know i'd never picked up the phone to so a stranger before in a really simple way i hadn't do you still, so, do you
0: still remember your first phone call
1: no i don't remember the first phone call um i remember the smell of the office i remember the environment i was in it was a very still environment there wasn't much action right yeah and i stayed there for nearly 11 years 10 years wow uh, and being a kid i was 17 and a half so being a, a spotty teenager as i always say it because i still was i remember it i remember the suits that i used to wear like whew, it was interesting <laughs> right and um i'd be sat in this room which is about a thousand square feet 1500 square feet there's seven of us in a semicircle right and i'm at the top of one side that abuts the window it was all glass and I was sat there from, you know, 8.45 in the morning till six o'clock at night. Yeah. And I remember vividly every day at three o'clock, my body would shut down. My mind would shut down and my body was shut down because it would, it was like, I was an athlete when it came to going to school at 8.30 in the morning and finishing at 3, 3.30 and having breaks in between. Yeah. So my thinking capacity was much more narrow. Yeah. And I, and I had to train myself to get to a point where I could work through, through the day. Yeah. And I would catch myself. I'd be sat there like this over my book, literally like I am now. I'd be at my book and I'd look at the clock and I'd doze off like this. And I'd catch myself before I dribbled kind of thing because I was falling asleep, right? And it would be 3.30, it'd be the time that my, my mind and my body slowed down. Um, and it was the most difficult, but amazing working, um, learning environment. You know, I, it wasn't too noisy. So I could listen to what everyone had to say. Yeah. And I realized that every time I made a mistake, I had to learn from it. Otherwise I wouldn't earn anything. And, uh, to this day, Stephen passed away sadly, uh, a few years back, um, And it's still very upsetting talking about it because he was the guy who gave me my first go, right? He believed in me when when, when a lot of people wouldn't have done. Yeah. Um, And he didn't have to. And uh, I I, I am extremely thankful for that opportunity. And um, I'm also really impressed with my patience, because everyone in that room was 15 years older than me, practically, or at least 12 years older than me. So I had little in common with everybody else. I was still a teenager and I sat it out. And when all my friends around me were working in banks and recruitment consultants and making probably four times what I was making, I sat it out. Wow. And it was a grind, it wasn't easy. Yeah. My first, my first, so my, my salary was £7,000 a year, I think it was, or £8,000 a year, and then commission on top. That was the beginning.
0: That's an incredible place to start, isn't it? I mean, when you think about, I mean, obviously we'll come to sort of where you are now, but when you think about where you are now and the foundations that were put in place that sort of enabled you to develop, what do you think were the key things that you did learn and that you have taken from that experience that established the person that you were to become?
1: So this is a really weird thing to say, but I don't think I'm anywhere now.
0: Do you feel like, because you're constantly progressing and evolving and becoming a better person? Okay.
1: Yeah. I, I don't, I don't really sit back and go, Oh wow, look how far I've come. Like that doesn't really happen. I'm so fixated on, trying to create something beautiful for the future, not just for myself, but for other people. But it's very rare that you sit there and then you look back and go, oh, wow, I did all of this. Like, it just becomes a memory. Yeah. Right? It just becomes a memory. It's funny that we're doing this today because last night um, I had dinner with a friend of mine who I've known since I was six years old. Okay? His name's Arian. I always do it in a Persian accent because he's Persian. And uh, we look relatively similar. And um, one day, when I was a kid, I was walking down the road which he lived on, and his mum was walking towards me, and I was walking towards her. But it was a big distance, and she kept on saying Ariane, like this, right? She didn't realise that it was it was Daniel, and I was getting <laughs> walking. And then she realised it was me, She she's like, "Oh, you're not said <laughs> no." And uh, anyway, so it's a funny story, which we reenacted last night. But Arian's here, so Arian knows me as Dags right, the guy from the park that used to kick the ball about with him, yeah, who's seen in the window for a decade working at Vickers, and the guy who you know, had a decent right foot, and um, just, just the normal guy, right? And he's like, I'm so proud of you, and I'm like, no, dude, I'm proud of you, you've come to Dubai, you've got married, you've got beautiful kids, like, your brother's here, he's married, got beautiful kids, like, it's lovely, right? And there were so many reasons for us not to get on. He was Persian, like proper Iranian boy. I'm Jewish, half Israeli. There's so many reasons why the world would have told us not to get to, you know, not to be friends. And we are, right? And we met for dinner and I met his brother a couple of nights ago. And they said, look, you know, I I remember those days. I remember you in the office and walking past you in the office. And, you know, you sat there and doing all the viewings and, um, I can't remember all of this. And, okay, there was a moment last night whilst we're having a hamburger right next to a mosque. It's meant to be the coolest spot here in Dubai. And, um, you know, that's probably a moment that you consider where you've come from. Yeah. But but I am, and I always have been, insanely fixated of getting better at something and creating more opportunity and continuing that spiral, right? Continuing that growth. So the imagination keeps me moving forward, not looking back. If that makes any sense,
0: I think that's also quite key. If you were to go down the route of being a footballer, because obviously you wouldn't have time to be complacent, because you'd always be fixated on the next achievement and what you were going to do next. So that attitude yeah, maybe was think, bestowed on you from early.
1: Yeah, quite possibly. I mean, I do. I thank my parents a lot because they come. It's something very interesting. The more and more that I do this sort of stuff the more and more I try to understand my own psyche, right? Um, I do want to answer your question about what did I learn from from, um, from Vickers in those moments. Like I haven't forgotten about that. And this is about adding value to people listening to this. But um, I think that the first 15 years for 15 to 20 years are unbelievably crucial, right? Because if you go to school and it's not, and the way school teaches you isn't the way that you learn, right? I really struggle with spelling and grammar. You know, I'm terrible at it. I'm probably dyslexic. But I could have let environment tell me that I was stupid, right? And let me convince myself that I was even though I wasn't or aren't, right? And just let me sit in this small environment and not think about the possibilities of what could happen. And what is really interesting, because I spend a lot of time on my own, because I'm not married, I don't have kids yet, and, I, and I, I want that to happen. Um, what is really interesting is that I think my creative values and and thinking comes from my parents. And both my parents had really interesting backgrounds. So they traveled the world. My mom's been married a couple of times before. She met my father, which is really unusual. And She was in the army. Then she was a police officer. then she was a private investigator. She was a model. She did loads of things, Right. My dad was one of the first people in the casino industry coming from like super humble beginnings, like from zero. And I think what it allowed me, what it did is like it sprinkled some angel dust on me to say, there's no reason why you can't go and do really interesting shit in your life. Yeah. And I think that that stayed in my subconscious, which allowed me to think creatively. It also helped that my dad used to tell the most incredible stories. Yeah. Not not real life stories. But he would just make up stories. No, like fantastic, like putting me to bed and stuff. Like really amazing. Do
0: you think that that helped um, imagination
1: wise? A hundred percent. Because when I when I look over the years, when I've when I've been fortunate enough to build teams and support teams and bring new people in, a good agent can think and speak at the same time, but about different things. Yeah. Right. So I can talk to you about this, but I'm thinking about the five water bottles over there and why they're fi- like, I want them to be have the ability to do multiple things or think ahead of the conversation whilst they're speaking. Absolutely. So I will ask people. So they need a good imagination. That's a good skill set. So I'll ask some people, good salespeople, uh, to tell me a story. Make it up. Right, just make up a story. So a lot of the time, they'll use themselves as the reference point. So Daniel was walking down the street, right? But on the other occasion, you'll get somebody who'll be like, once upon a time, there was a guy called Tissue. And Tissue was, and they'd go into a story. Now, I know that person is making something up on the spot and thinking ahead of itself. Yeah. So it makes sense. That person's got a creative mind. That person can think on the spot. That person can do multiple things at the same time. And you need that, right? So where did I get that from? My dad. Yeah? yeah. I've got other things from my mum, but I've got this element, the speaking element, creating atmosphere and building rapport from my father because he was a, he's a people person.
0: And that helps tremendously within this industry, especially to be able to have these kind of, you know, um, relationships with people and build that very quickly because it then in turn also helps with trust and other aspects too
1: well i think if you're a people person if you're in a job where you're selling you have to be a people person especially if it's face to face or over the phone because the people person will know how someone feels because they will be able to recognize how they would feel if they were having that conversation sure right so whether it's empathy or whatever you want to say that that's the main fundamentals I want to come back to your point about what I learned whilst I was working at the Vickers. I learned that you can learn from other people's mistakes and you must learn from your own. It's the most wonderful thing working at a small independent. Yeah, It's because everything that you say and everything you do hits the bottom line, right? And I would sit there, even if I had, I had nothing going on, there was no computers, there were no smartphones for three or four years. I would listen to everyone around me and I would notice when Stuart who was the guy sat next to me who had 10-15 years experience at the time was talking to clients and talking to buyers and I would notice when he would say the same think about this I would notice when he would say certain sentences and what resulted from saying that sentence bearing in mind I did I wasn't able to listen to what the buyer or seller was saying just what he was saying and then I would see how he was saying it it taught me so much. The amount that you can learn from people if you're really interested is, is just incredible. And that, that taught me an awful lot. How to be disciplined, how to sit in an office, how to stay away from temptation. I could have jacked that job in, right? Yeah. Could have gone anywhere, done anything. In the end, after learning some skill sets, sitting there for 10 years whilst you watch your friends go out and smash it. Um, I remember having a moment when I was probably about 25, 24, 25, when my friends were going out and they were making probably three or four times the amount of money. And when you're a kid, that's really important, right? I mean, it's important anyway, but when you're a kid and your friends got a nicer car than you and they're wearing, I don't know they've got the, the newest NAFNAF wallet or what was it, Chevignon or Nike's or whatever it was. And you're like down on the tipping order when it comes to chicks not liking you because they're like the guys who are the cool guys, who got all the stuff. Like, it wasn't easy. And I remember being, being sat there. I remember this vividly, okay? I remember saying to myself, you know what? I think in the world, if you become excellent at anything, if you become the best at anything, you'll do really well in life. And I remember thinking about, uh, for some reason, it was, um, it was a carpenter. Right. I remember thinking, for some reason, I, my mind took me to carpentry. If you become the best person at making, what was it? It was like a bedside table. And you become world renowned at making the best bedside tables, you're going to be insanely successful. Yeah. That's why I, I remember saying that to myself at 24, 25 years old. And go, just stick it out. Everyone else is doing all of this. And they're bouncing from this job to this job, get a higher pay packet and a golden handshake. Just stick with what you are doing. Yeah, Focus on it. That's what I did. And then I saw opportunities that other people didn't.
0: So where did the opportunity arise where you then felt like it was the right time to move on?
1: Yeah, that was uh, one of the hardest things that I've done in my professional life was leaving Vickers because... One, they gave me an opportunity where you didn't have to. Two, they were like family to me, right? I spent 10 years of my life beside Peter, Stephen, Stuart, um, Marika at the time, and, and Carmen. And uh, I remember saying to them, look, I want equity in the business, right? I'm going to drive this business forward. Um, I really want to share in it. I'm sh- I've showed my commitment. I've done 10 years, or I think it was eight years at the time, nine years. Said I'd like to move forward. And they were stalling me. They were stalling me. They were stalling me on finance, like paying me more. I was underpaid. And then all of a sudden the bigger businesses, like the Knight Franks and the Savills of this this world and the Chestertons uh, and these bigger companies were starting to make inroads in these local markets. And it was more shiny and more interesting. And they got company cars and they got this and that. And it was like, hmm, there's a bigger, wider world out there. And so I put the feelers out um mike frank were really interested in me the boss in the local office uh had always flirted me through football he knew about me through football and he knew that i was a good boy and i was good on the football pitch but i'm a good agent and people know me and, you know i'm hungry and determined all those sort of things and there was a couple of local businesses which would have hurt right going from a small local business to a small local business wouldn't have been very you know not a great thing to do And uh, the small businesses said, Look, come in as a partner. And this is like 2007, so just before the credit crunch. Yeah. And then Night Frank said, Yeah, come, please come down. I had an interview. I remember turning up at the interview with the head of London at the time. (laughs) He totally forgot (laughs) that I had an interview. So he said, Do you want to come back another day? And I said, No, I'm here now. Let's do it now. Uh, And he was a great guy, actually. His name is Dick Ford, and he was an amazing character. I had really strong personality, but was very friendly, really good people person. Um, And I decided to go there. I felt that um, we were in um, a global... uh, Everything, there was globalisation that was taking place. So big companies had offices in different places, and it felt like a bigger, better platform for me to grow myself. Yeah, yeah, in in or on however you want to describe it. And so my choice was to work in a in the local office in the St John's Wood office and work between a million to four million, or from four million to ten million. And I and I can feel that the market's about to tank. Right, you could just tell in the news. Whilst I didn't really understand much about um, credit and so on and so on. In the financial markets. I knew that the market was going to tank. So I said to myself, well, I think when the market bounces back, the people with money are going to be the first people who are going to bounce back. So I want to go at the higher point of the market. It might be more difficult for the time being, but if I prove my wealth or my worth and I do what I think I can do, I'll be fine. So I go and I work in the market between four and 10 million. And for six months, I don't do a deal. And for me, that was really weird because I always had a yellow folder on my desk. I'd usually have probably up to about 10 or 12 deals that I was doing. And then I go into an environment where the most expensive property I'd sold previously was something like £1.8 million in Clifton Gardens, still friends with the owner. And then all of a sudden I'm working between 4 to £10 million. And I have to learn the neighbourhood whilst I lived on the outskirts of the neighbourhood. I didn't know the neighbourhood. Yeah. And so I went there and for six months, I really struggled. It was like, oh, what tie am I wearing? You know, am I wearing the right tie? Maybe I've got to change my underwear or something. You know, I just, everything goes through your head as a salesman. This is what you think. Um, and, and, then, and then I start rocking and rolling. And people are losing their jobs around me, which is very sad. And in theory, last one in, first one out. But they saw something in me, right? Yeah. Personally, I think it was pretty obvious. I already had ten years worth of experience under my belt, and I looked like a sixteen-year-old. So, and they were paying me like one. So, like, <laughs> you know, what's the difference? I literally I hardly got paid anything for two years. So, within six months, I'd done six hundred and fifty thousand pounds in fees. Now, to put that into perspective most agents earn for their for their companies now, anywhere between two hundred to £300,000. Pounds. And this was 2007. At this point, it was about, it was halfway through 2008. So they knew to expect bigger things from me. And I was doing really well. And I worked there for 12 years, a long time. It was a different environment. Um, and I learned a lot.
0: Working in that envirom- environment, I guess, is kind of what... Um enabled you to sort of learn a lot of different things that have now enabled you to go at it in the way that you have today what do you think whilst you were there as well as learning you know how to navigate in what was easily one of the difficult times of of anyone's career I remember 2008 so well um, what do you think for you meant that you succeeded and thrived especially then and then What things for you now do you think you've learned, especially that came from those six months?
1: Um, I'm always the hardest working person in the room. People get offended when you say that, but I am. Um, I'll work faster and harder than most people and I'm prepared to sacrifice. And I'm relentless, but my attitude is that I want to get on with everyone. So I'm covering a lot of ground and I'm making a good impression consistently. When you go and work anywhere, right, if you don't have a unique selling point, if you don't have leverage, you need to know or you need to make sure that the market wants to do business with you. It's very important to be liked, even though one boss of mine told me that it's irrelevant being liked. You've got to look after yourself. Right. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Uh, Disagree more. Excuse me. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I couldn't. I couldn't disagree more. The reason why I've been successful is because I've seen opportunity. I've got on with people who wanted to return the favour and give me an opportunity, and I've been able to upskill myself so I know a lot more than other counterparts in certain things. That's it, right? You get a much more efficient, fun service with me. They're the core fundamentals, I would have thought. Do
0: you think that once you sort of began to get on the cusp of things like social media and other um, tactics that I guess were changing within the industry, especially for what was normally quite a closed way of doing business. It had a very kind of traditional way.
1: The UK is lethargic. It lacks entrepreneurialism.
0: I agree, but it where really you- lacks, on-
1: Well, I could tell you from my own perspective where up until the age of 26, I'd gone away to Israel quite a bit because of the family. i have been to Paris once, cornwall once born with once and um and i hadn't traveled much a couple of stags here and there in europe and then i had a, a little bit of an argument with a girl who was working with me and supporting me um at night frank in my previous firm and she said to me what well, do you know you haven't been anywhere she was 100 right i recognized it immediately and so i traveled for the next decade of my life i travelled for work and for pleasure, but then I would take one or two days out of my trip of fun to go and meet the best agents in every capital city that I have traveled to and go and see the most expensive stock and understand their market. And the reason, and, and sorry, the conclusion I came across is that the structure that affords people, um, that it suits in the UK is great, but it does this. And everywhere else that I've been to, entrepreneurialism sits higher. And the people who've been most successful have entrepreneurial spirit. Because if everyone does the same thing, you can't stand out. Yeah. And you want to stand out if you want to do something big in your life. You have to be prepared to be shot at. Right? Because that happens.
0: Absolutely. That was what I was going to say. That happens.
1: And in the UK, we're very quick to say, What is he doing? What is she doing? We don't look and admire. We look to attack. Whereas in the US, they have entrepreneurial spirit. In Asia, they have respect and entrepreneurial spirit. In Europe, they have entrepreneurial spirit that comes from passion and fire. Yeah. Sometimes it leads to the right destination. Sometimes it doesn't. In the UK, we don't. We have order. And we're starting to feel the effects of having too much order There should be a sphere to work in, but you need to allow people to be creative. Absolutely. Otherwise, we just do the same as everyone else. And in a globalized economy, where frankly, I can sell property from the UK in Dubai, Hong Kong, wherever, if you are the norm, the rest of the world's going to eat you. I think that we really need to do more. It's my job as someone who's been in business for 23 years. It's my job to inspire people to be creative,
0: when you realize like for things like social media and other aspects of the business, I guess when you started to travel, you really did notice that there was a lot going on out there. People, and-
1: people were doing things differently. People think we doing things different. There were things in the UK that were brilliant, that, that if the US or South Africa or mainland Europe or wherever I'd gone to Israel, Dubai, if they'd adapted to certain things that the UK were able, was able to deliver they would excel too. It's like ingredients for a cake. I noticed that there was much more creativity. Social media was just a no-brainer. Just was a no-brainer for sure. me. Yeah. And now all of a sudden, five years later, six years later, the world is catching up. My industry is catching up. Or trying to.
0: Yeah, that, that's probably a good way of putting it. I think there's a lot that are now attempting to do it. Um, but obviously the blue. Blueprint- changes very quick
1: of course it does i think i've got a good steer of where i think the world is going when it comes to media and marketing and agency and property and clients and uh psychology and stuff like that yeah if i don't i, I this is where i need to believe in myself right if i don't think that i've got a good steer of where the future's going then who does yeah <laughs> right but i still look at myself as just this kid from made of L. What does he know? Right. So you'll find a lot of business leaders suffer with um where you think that you're pretending to be somebody. Facade. No, there's another word for it. It'll come to me. Now it's a really interesting time. The social media thing was a real no-brainer. Like my business is all about people. The property is the property. It's a fixed asset. That's not going to change, right? Except for the weather. That's not going to change. Well, who who do I need to buy the property? People. Oh, I can speak to a thousand people for free every day. Well, that sounds like a good idea. Do I think that I'm a good human being and I want good for for other people as well as myself? Yeah, okay. Then I need to start owning myself and start being brave. It was one of the most difficult things I've ever done.
0: That was going to be my next question. How easy did you feel that it was, you know, making that jump? and, and It wasn't easy. You were essentially one of the first, if not the first. I, I think I was the
1: first to do it. And, and excuse me, if there's someone else who can prove that they were the first to professionalize Instagram for a real estate agent. I think I was the first and it was frigging hard and it was super hard. One, the environment that you live in and work in doesn't necessarily agree to it because they don't understand it because they choose not to try and understand it um, because they're very cynical. When you grow, sometimes people don't like it when you grow. Three. We're in a culture where people get offended very easily about everything. Absolutely. But my mantra was, if I'm a good boy and I am my true self over social channels and I'm doing stuff not to harm anyone else, but improve other people's lives and improve the opportunity to sell your asset, yeah. if it's on the internet, well, then if you're putting it on the portals pool uh, and I've got uh, 10,000 people that follow me or are interested in watching what I'm doing – and I'm helping you sell it, right? Super simple. And um, I built an incredible following of extremely supportive people. Some not so much, but, you know, I tend to lean into the difficult things in life. Okay,
0: But there must have been a lot of people who were looking at what you were doing and just thinking to themselves that you were either crazy or that you were just foolish for, for doing something that was so different? Crazy, foolish, crazy,
1: foolish, egotistical, um, cocky, all of those things.
0: Was, Every was, single one. Was there ever a point when you kind of thought to yourself, maybe they're right, or, or started to sort of listen to... No, you didn't at no. all?
1: No, 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 hold on, no, no. I listen to everybody. This is why my skill set is so good, right? I do a lot of listening. <laughs> Yeah, like a hell of a lot of listening. Yeah. And I don't listen to respond, I listen to think and then choose to respond. So, is it easy coming home every day knowing that people are talking about you in a derogatory fashion because you're doing something different that supports other people? Of course it's not. Nah, it's not it's not very easy. Is it easy knowing that other people are speaking ill of you behind your back yet to your face? They're nice as anything. No, it's not. It was very difficult. And as a single man who goes home every night, yeah, and is in his thoughts every night, it's not very pleasant at all. It was very difficult. Was it worth it? Yes.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Do you think that you had to um, use the fact that you... By the way, Zach,
1: I thank my mum and my friends who are really close to me and a few people within the work environment who supported me. But my mum is the hardest person on the planet. She is so tough and so strong when she thinks she's right. But I got a bit of that from her too. And I thank my mum for that. My dad is soft and caring and nurturing and fun and, and, and cool and kind and all that sort of stuff. And my mum is um, powerful and strong and determined and focused, all these elements. And if it wasn't for my mum, I wouldn't have been able to survive this journey.
0: Did you have conversations? Did you have conversations with them and say, like, you know, this is no? Because you- I didn't, didn't want to apply. I didn't want to. I didn't want to. I didn't.
1: I didn't want to share exactly how I felt with my parents because my parents, at the time, they were late seventies, and the last thing that your parents want to hear um, from their son is that he's stressing about something or he's anxious about something. I don't want to put that on my parents. I want to tell my parents that everything's all good. Don't worry about it. Your son's smashing it. He's doing a great job. He's a good boy. He's good to his friends. He's kind to the people he works with. He's super determined, but he doesn't go out to wreck someone else to be better himself. That's just not your son. That's not the son you raised. Yeah? So no, I didn't want to do that. Some of my friends, my parents knew that it was a bit of a struggle every now and again. Of course they did. To, 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 my friends who stood beside me were incredible. Because a lot of things that people wanted to say to me that didn't have the guts to say it to me, they would say it to my friends in a negative capacity. And my friends would have to stick up for me. But thankfully, the friends that I've got around me are incredible. They pull me down when I get too, too high off my own supply and they push me up when I need pushing up, right? And they were amazing, and I thank them to this day. To this day, all right? They know who they are uh, for supporting me through the difficult times. Some of them are clients. Some of them, are my my godchildren's parents, and my other friends. Yeah. Um, and now they don't reap the rewards. But all of a sudden, everyone starts to realise that social media is a business. And their friend had a little bit more foresight.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Because that's what it is. I um, I did an episode in, in season one where I sort of talk about my distaste, I guess, for social media um, or not, not quite the platforms itself, but sort of what a lot of people are traditionally using them for, which isn't for... Um, you know, promoting a business or, or to do anything with, but just essentially to just exist on um, when they could be using it to, to push something, whether that be a personal brand or, or something. Um, do you think that when you started to use it as a tool for the things that you were selling, was there a point where you then realized that your own personal brand was starting to develop into being as big as some of the properties that you were selling? No, um,
1: I don't think I'm selling anything. I'm marketing everything. This is what I think about sales and marketing. I think marketing is everything up until you start talking numbers, everything. As a service provider, I'm marketing myself and the assets that I'm selling. But I only sell them once you express an interest in them. So everything's about marketing. And I realized that when I was a kid, when I had no knowledge, I realised very quickly at Vickers & Company that Stuart was much more knowledgeable than me that Andy and Chris and Teresa and other people in and around the neighbourhood and the other companies, they had more knowledge than me. What did I have that I was willing to do that they weren't willing to do? So I tell you what it was? Go on. I had more energy and I was willing to save other people time, right? So this is what I find amazing. And agents don't do it today around the world. And I just think it's bonkers. When I get a lead, yeah, I still do it today. When I get a lead and someone says, hi there, I saw your advert for that 2 million pound property or million pound property or 25 million pound property, whatever it is, 100 million pound property. Um, and they say, oh, I'd like to see it. And I say it. Okay, yeah, sure. would love to show it to you. Upbeat, accepting, kind, yeah. Um, have you seen anything else you like? No, we've just started looking. Just started looking. Wonderful news. That's great. Well, I'll tell you what. I'll show you this, but before I do that, we'll organise it for a certain day. When you're available, we'll organise the time and say, okay, before then, probably later today, what I'll do is I'll get a list of every other property that's relatively similar. With all the other agents, so you don't have to speak to 15 different other estate agents, right? They're going to give you different pieces of information and call you and text you and email you, the whole shebang. I'm going to get all that information for you. I'm going to send it to you. And if you want to see any of them, let me know and we'll do it together and I'll buy you a coffee. And don't worry, I'll pick you up. And I would take them to see every property in the first viewing. I own the market. I would show them my personality. This is Daniel. I'm 17 and a half. Right, I'm in the game. I'm young. I'm super hungry. I'm determined. I want to do a really good job for you. Please help me. I'd really appreciate it. I'm gonna make your life easier. I'm gonna run around for you. I'm gonna make sure that you're not getting a million phone calls from other people. And I'm gonna buy you a coffee. Meanwhile, I was earning this much money. I built a huge network of people that recognised that I was trying to make their life easier, and I'm still doing it to today.
0: Have you still got the book?
1: Yeah, I still got the book. It's at home. Daniel's sick. Let's tell 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 the audience about the book. So, it wasn't my idea. Uh I'm ripping off from Stewie who sat next to me. But Stewie had this little book. I mean, it was it was this big and it was in tatters and he would just put in some information whenever he sold a property. So, I was like, I'm getting a book. So, so, I went out and I bought this I bought this book, this tall skinny book. I don't know what it is. A C3 book or whatever it was. a red and black. And every time I did a deal, I put the address, I put the the date of exchange when the deal goes hard, the date of completion, the name of the buyer, the name of the seller, and then the um, the, I can't remember if I wrote price, but the price. And then in the top right-hand corner of that little element, I would just put the number of my commission. So 230 pounds or whatever it was. And this book dates back to 1997. And I think the first sale was like 117,000 pounds or 86,000, one of the two, I think it's 117,000. Uh, and then it goes up right until 2007, so 10 years, before I moved to my next firm, and then everything was digitised. But the great thing about that book is that like, it isn't actually, it's like an index of my life, my working life when I was a kid. And... Um, The person who sold a property through me for £117,000. 18 years later, 19 years later, appointed me to sell a £70 million house. He did that because I built a great rapport with him. That is what I'm most proud of.
0: That's incredible.
1: Not the commissions, not the sales. I'm most proud of the fact I can text or call hundreds of people and they'll all greet me with a smile over the phone because I made a lot of people's lives a lot easier. And I got this from my dad, because I used to recognize when my dad used to walk into people's homes to measure up their kitchen, or they used to bump into him on the street, or we drive around, wherever we went. It didn't matter if you were black, Asian, white, Muslim, Jewish, Sikh, um, gay, or lesbian. Everyone greeted my dad the same way. And that's why I don't see because of the, my upbringing and I went to a local boys club and I was the only Jewish kid and everyone else was of different, um, um, different walks of life. Um, that's why I don't see color or race or religion as a, as a, as a reason not to do business or do business or have a relationship with someone. Um, and uh, yeah, that was from my dad.
0: When it came to um, obviously the change for you, going about it on your own, and setting up what you've now um, begun to establish, was it scary? Was it tough for you? Or did it just feel like it was, the na- it was a natural progression?
1: Leaving my firm was uh, not pleasant. Doing what I'm doing now, uh, I don't really have time to be nervous about it. I'm the only person who's gonna look after me.
0: <laughs> no, of course.
1: Right. I'm going to have to look after my parents. No one else can look after them. So it's, it's like, was it Tupac? All eyes on me? Yes. Right. Yeah. Everything's on me. I like being a pillar. I like it when people lean on me and ask for my help. I enjoy it. It gives me naches, which is like a Jewish term, it gives me a good feeling when I know someone has chosen me to help them when they can choose other people. It shows that they trust me and they like me and they like my expertise all those things. So setting up the business was, was, uh, what I'm, what I'm building now and about to build is the vision I had about five, six years ago that I wanted to adopt elsewhere, but instead it's happening here. And I don't think small I'm thinking pretty big.
0: Where do you see the business growing in terms of where it is today to next year? and then sort of five years or 10 years down the line?
1: I think uh, business is is going to be so much more personal than it's ever been before. Um, If you are really serious about your business and you're in the service sector, you need digital uh, footprint. You need digital handles. You need to be on them. You need to be visible. If you are not visible as a service provider, um, you lack trust because people can't get data points on you. If they can't get data points on you, how do they trust you? um i wrote an instagram post that says um trust is built on knowing and knowing is built on awareness people need to know who you are and then they need data points to to understand whether or not there's someone that you that they trust or can trust so um with that in mind business is going to get much more personal because clients are going to follow their agents and their agent's going to follow their clients and in the end they're not going to follow loads of agents they're going to follow one or two yeah Yeah, and privacy is vitally important, and you'll get that through an individual, not a big business. Also, with digital formatting, what happens is people can now find the exact person they want. They don't have to go to somebody to find someone else. Yeah. So if you went to Vickers, Stuart in my early days was much better than me. If you wanted the best service when you walked into that office, and you didn't know who was the person who would give you the best service, you'd walk into that office and you'd get whoever was free at the time. Not necessarily the person who's going to give you the best, most accurate service. Now you can find the person who will give you the best, most accurate service that has the best track record and maybe the best network and skill set.
0: Was it a case for you when you decided to go at it alone? um that it was thanks to growing the social media following that you now have and doing all of the networking that you have done and building up the report with as many people that it made it not easy I don't want to say easy because I think that is it is still incredibly difficult to do but do you think that it made it easier in terms of what you can do and sort of the, the path that you can follow because of the trust that you've got? Sure
1: without a shadow of a doubt so one I can speak to 100,000 people in one day over my digital channels. Is that powerful? Yes. Two, um, I stay front of mind in a lot of my um, clients' eyes because of digital channels and everybody is a potential referrer of business. And therefore, if I'm hitting 100,000 people um, and they speak to one person each, now I've hit 200,000 people. It's a good way to look at
0: it. It's a very good way to look at it. The same
1: way I walk, I, walk in, I came to Dubai for a 10-day holiday and then London goes back into lockdown and I'm here. And I walk into a restaurant and I get my phone beeps four times and it's four different clients asking me if I've just walked into this restaurant. And then they want to meet up with me because they've seen me on digital channels and I'm constantly in front of them. I've done 10 million pounds worth of deals here. I've brought 50 million pounds worth of property to the market. All because my clients know that I'm in Dubai, not because I've had to call a thousand of them.
0: Are you seeing it now being a case that there's a lot of um, agents trying to emulate or copy what the format is that you don't mind.
1: I, I don't mind. I want them to do what's best for them. If it is replicate what I do and copy what I do or improve in whatever way they think they can improve, then go for it. I think I've got a good blueprint. Um, And I want good for other people. I don't, you know, like, uh, it's not all about me. A lot of of people thought it was all about me when I was doing social media and just my life and stuff because I've got self-belief. But I think people are starting to come to terms with the fact that that's not the case. I just see things in a different way. Yeah. Yeah. And when you look at
0: stuff in a different way, people don't like it. <laughs> they just don't like it. Right. No, it's true. It is true. When um, when you started with your Instagram to where it is today. Um, and of course, like you say, things are sort of never a finished product. So they're always sort of work in progress. Was there a moment or has there been a moment essentially where you've managed to put a property on your account? or show it on your story or whatever. And off the back of that, a completely organic lead has come that has then led to someone buying that house through Instagram. I
1: was bringing 400 million pounds worth of leads a month in my previous business. I sold a property for 45 million pounds off Instagram. I've met the richest people on the planet, not from my previous business, but from Instagram. I've built the best relationships with the most influential people on the planet via social handles. You tell me what is more ridiculous, right? I'm going to stick 15 properties on the inside on the, on the eight, 18th page of a local newspaper and put it out there and advertise it that way, right? Of which most people don't pick it up, they don't read it, they don't look at it, not, not now anymore. Meanwhile, I share it, I share to people, okay, there's going to be some people that want to sleep with me. There's going to be some people that want to laugh at me. And there's going to be no, come on, let's be honest, right? There's going to be some people that are going to laugh at me. And there's going to be some people that are going to be really intrigued with the real estate that I think is interesting. Yeah. Right. And my views about property and where it's going and my views about real estate and about space travel and how it impacts real estate and my view about what agents need to do. And my, like, if you're interested in what I have to say, then great. Right. And if I'm selling this property and I put it in front of, I get between four to 8,000 people looking at my stories. Okay. If I put your property in front of four to 8,000 people and they share it to one person each, I'm hitting 16,000 people for free, immediately. All around the world. So what would you rather do? Put in an advert where, just so you know, most super prime buyers, which is the market I work in, come from overseas. So yeah. do you want to advertise in the local newspaper here to sell your property? Fuck no. <laughs> or would you rather put it with Daniel Daggers, who understands how the ultra high net worth thinks, how they move, how they buy, how they refer and where they're spending their time and what are they looking at and how they engage looking at it. Like, who do you?
0: I mean, well, in that case, it's a no brainer, isn't it? Of course it is. That's why we're going to be phenomenally successful. And do you think that the direction that you're taking your agency in is going to become something which is going to be emulated later on down the line by other agents as well. Do you think we're going to see a rise like of that?
1: It's, yeah, I don't think we're going to see a rise of it. I think it's here, right? If you don't have a digital channel, you, you're, you're deaf to the world. You're blind to the world. So are people going to emulate something that's successful? I hope so. If they're emulating it, it's because it is successful.
0: And that's OK. That's great. I'm thinking about it now. And, um, and I'm just thinking about times when I bought watches and the amount of dealers that I've then done exchanges with over DMs, and when I've seen that they're selling things, and I've dm them and just shot them a message. So I guess in that respect, even without realizing it, I guess things are starting now to become more about. Instagram. No, they're not starting. Well, it, I, it's so, here. It's, been, it's, it's been, here. It's
1: here. We're in
0: it. <laughs> but I guess it's becoming I,
1: my 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 ex business. My ex business has hundreds of Instagram accounts personal Instagram accounts, hundreds, the whole of the U S There's going to be probably look, I'll, I'll, let, let me explain why real estate agent, there's 7 million real estate agents across the planet. They are selling themselves because they're offering a service and they're selling an asset that is luxurious for the market. That's interested in knowing what the person is selling, right? So we're selling a service, which is me. So what's up, guys? And then we're selling assets that are visually stimulating, like watches and boats and planes and cars and all that sort of jazz. That is aspirational. Instagram really suits that. It's a great medium for it. Okay? There is going to be 6 million estate agents with digital handles. There's probably a million now, maybe two. Is it going to be emulated? It's already been adopted. Everyone's doing it. Right? Yeah. And look at all the best agents. or not the best. Look at the biggest, most successful agents in the world. Most of them have a footprint, a big one. Now, they may have started off by being on TV and good luck to them. Uh, Does it help? I'm sure it did, right? Having a million followers or half a million followers makes a huge difference, right? Being put on TV makes a huge difference. But they need to have the balls to do it. That's why I hold my my arm up to them and say, well done, because it's difficult, not easy. You're putting yourselves in the limelight. So one, they're doing it, they have to be brave. Two, they get the following. And then they become phenomenally successful because all of a sudden people start to choose the people that they want to do business with.
0: I want to ask you, in terms now of that relationship being there, how many times would you say, let's think, let's try and broaden it out. Has there been a case that you've had sold one property to a person, then they've come back again and then they've come back again. And maybe you've done four or five or six or managed a range of different properties for them as a result of that trust being there and it being a case of them being loyal to only you. Has there been a case where you've now built up a, a recurring theme of just people always coming back to you to do business with? Every client is a client for life. Why do you think Every that client. is? There's trust
1: there. Solely trust? The UK, the UK system, no, in skill set and charm and charisma and fun and all that sort of stuff, right? Uh, I'm not talking about me, I'm talking about just any agent in general. If I'm going to go and spend 15 hours of my time looking at a property, I'd rather do it with a friend.
0: Of course. Or someone
1: that I know, right? So, um, and people recognize how valuable their time is. So, um, look, I think the UK system is broken. It lacks trust. I'm not going to go into why, but it lacks trust. Every one of my clients is a client for life. I want them to buy their first, and people have done this, I want them to buy their first home from me, their second home from me, their marital home from me, their first family home from me, their second family home from me, their pied de terre from me, their holiday home as a referral to someone in Ibiza, and then their final home being uh, the one they end up passing away in. Why wouldn't they choose to do that with one person? Why Would they rather give the money to a stranger where there's no trust
0: well i guess it also comes down to a case of you being proactive as well in how you're selling these assets
1: it's like anything any service you have to offer
0: value what is your value so in looking forward now uh, you say that the uk mm. um system is broken where do you see those improvements coming in or how do you see it okay, good good point
1: i don't want i don't want i don't want to sort of sit on the fact that i think it's broken i want to sit on the fact that there's just amazing opportunity lying ahead um, where do i see it moving forward i see a massive change within the next 12 months 12 to 24 months 24 months let's say massive change and i think people will win not organisations
0: do you think it's been accelerated now because of covid or do you think that that's just it was going to happen anyway. I think people
1: were winning from when Thierry Henry left Arsenal. Which I'll tell you why.
0: I'm a Spurs fan. Do go on?
1: <laughs> well, if I, if I could remember when Spurs were successful, oh. I, I would I would use the same I would use the same uh, the same theory. I'm sorry. Um, look, growing up, everyone said you're not bigger than the team, but an individual is now bigger than a team. Cristiano Ronaldo is bigger than his team. Yeah, Messi is bigger than his team. Okay? And people have power. Whether you you choose to like it or you don't like it, people have power because they have influence. So when Paul Pogba decides to renegotiate his terms at Manchester United, he's got 100 million followers that will all buy his shirt. That equates to hundreds of millions of pounds in revenue and increases the brand appeal for Manchester United, he has influence. Sure. Right, Like The Rock is the most influential man on the planet now. He doesn't need a a production house, a, a movie company. He can do it himself. Why can't he create a film, put it on his digital channels, and let people download it? He has 228 million people that follow him something ridiculous like a like a, like an eighth of the world's population that's true, <laughs> we, have that's true. Rec- we have to we re- have to listen we have to recognize these changes we can all bury our heads in the sand right and go no it's gonna be fine you know i'm gonna die in 30 years 40 50 60 years and i'll be all right jack i'm not interested in that like i want to create the future for other people and we have to recognize change and adapt to it quickly,
0: but also making sure we're staying ahead of the curve so that we're not left behind.
1: Yeah. So I've never played in today's game. Today's game was yesterday's work. That's a good way of right? looking
0: at it. That's a perfect so, way of looking at so it. So I'm
1: always playing. I'm always playing in tomorrow. So um, the work that I do today supports my tomorrow, but my tomorrow. Supports the day after, right? So, whatever happens tomorrow is because of the work that I've done today. So, I'm focusing on tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. As long as I work in the moment, I'm focusing on tomorrow. Looking at. And then, and then you could look two years ahead or five years ahead and try to think about where it could all go. Yeah. And be creative.
0: And I guess also sort of looking at where the last five years have taken you and the journey that you've been able to navigate kind of does give you an indication of where things could go um, You know, in the next five years because of the trends and the changes and the attitudes and the way that people are starting to change the way of doing things. You know, the behavior yeah, is different. Let's
1: let's look, the behavior is very different. Let's look at a slightly different way, right? Sometimes I have to remind myself that I believe I'm right. And these are the reasons why. Maybe if I was really good at school and the teachers told me I was really good every week when I, gave, when I got my grades from them, I would just get on and believe. Because it would have been drummed into me. that you don't have to keep going back to think about whether or not you're right or not. Right? Yeah. So I, whenever I thought about something enough, And I had to make a decision. It was generally the right decision. I'm not saying I could get everything right. I've made loads of mistakes. I just don't tend to make the same mistake twice.
0: Because you learn from them.
1: It's very important to learn from your mistakes, yeah. So I have to have faith that getting to where I've got to, I've had to make thousands and thousands and thousands and maybe millions of small decisions and some big decisions for other people. Companies I've worked for, clients I've worked for, um, myself. I've had to make thousands and thousands of decisions when you're negotiating on big deals, when you're structuring stuff. And I've probably got more right than wrong. So you need to have faith in that. Do you always listen to your gut? Yeah, your gut's an amazing uh, telltale. So your gut is your subconscious. I believe it's your subconscious, right? Your conscious mind can take in seven things in one go. So if you're in a foreign space and I say close your eyes, Zach. And I said, right, tell me, give me seven um, things around us that really stick out. What's behind you? You'd pick out roughly seven to 14 things. That's what your conscious mind will show you. Your subconscious mind takes in hundreds, if not thousands. And when you make a decision, it tends to happen from your conscious mind, because there's seven uh, facts or data points that you will conclude and therefore make a decision. But your subconscious, when you're about to make the wrong decision, or you're thinking about it a lot, your subconscious goes in your tummy and goes, no, 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 no. I've seen 100 data points that suggest you should go left, not right.
0: That's how it works. At least I think it is. <laughs> <laughs> but when it came to you beginning and starting and, and putting your first listing out under Daniel Dagger's real estate, how easy or difficult a decision was it to, to sort of make that jump and to do it in the way that you did with visual content and sort of going about it in, in the way that you did, which is sort of very forward thinking. Did your gut say to you, let's just do it this wasn't- just run with it?
1: It wasn't forward-thinking. It was obvious. Dude, I walk into really nice homes. It's taken me 15 years to get there, right? For that luxury, luxury market. If your property is on the internet and you want it sold, I'm walking through the home and I've got people who'd be interested in seeing it. I've got an interesting job for people who are interested in the stuff that I do. So I just feel myself walking around the property and I might comment on it. It's a bit of a no-brainer. Or you can just get a PDF document of an asset and it says nothing and zero emotion whatsoever. Whereas when I walk through and go... What's up guys, how's it going? Right? all of a sudden you're like, oh, here it is. And I'm pointing out things that you would never even considered. Are oh, there pocket doors here. What are pocket doors? Were they saved space? This is why you do it. This is how you do it. Oh, what are shadow gaps? And why do architects do that? And you know, all these sort of things. It's infotainment, yeah. And it was a no-brainer. It really was.
0: And obviously now- There were that certain you-
1: data points. There were certain things that happened that, yeah. that, that just maybe lean in more, but yes.
0: Now that you have started to build a team, and grow it so that it becomes um a, a brand in itself that is sort of you know far bigger than just you on your own what were the key things that you looked for in building your team and the, and the the attributes that you wanted those people who are now part of and representing you to have
1: uh, integrity creative thinking kindness determination solution driven focused and uh and I don't care what you look like, where you come from, and uh, how you've got here, as long as you're good and you're a good person in my eyes.
0: That's a, It's a fantastic way of looking at it. Because I think for so long, people would be like, well, you've got to have done this and done this and had experience with this and sold this many. And, you know, but for you to. Look, if of- you're an estate
1: agent and your IQ is through the roof, you're going to at some point get pretty lazy because it's not stimulating you enough. My IQ isn't through the roof. My EQ is through the roof. Yeah. Yeah. And yes, I'm interested in not just selling property. Now I'm interested in building a business. I'm interested in blockchain. I'm interested in um, tokenization. I'm interested in loads of things. And I think my clients like the fact that I think big, not small. Right. I can think narrow if you want me to think narrow, because I've got so many data points. Yeah. But Integrity is really important.
0: Where did the um, the idea come for giving a percentage away of the profits?
1: I've always given a percentage away. Just didn't know about it. People didn't know about it. I've been a patron of Norwood for a decade where a proportion of my income was considerably bigger than it is now that went to them because I felt it was the right thing to do. I don't believe in the whole concept of, oh, well, let's make a lot of money, keep it to myself, spend it on stupid shit and then, uh, and then be the... Saddest man in in the best car. I just don't believe that. Yeah. I think that we all have, I think, and I think it's it's mainly a generation thing, but uh, I think we feel that we have to give back more.
0: And also for your employees and people in the business as well, is it important for them to do the same thing as well? I think
1: that we align ourselves in a nice way when we do that. This is something that's important to me, and if I if I have people around me, and they gravitate towards me because we have similar ethics and beliefs, I think that's a really good thing.
0: Has everyone got a charity that they're going to be donating to? Is there a, is it sort of a yeah. personal thing that they? I, love? I
1: I don't really want to comment on other people, but I know I know that they've got different um, organisations that they support. Yeah. And Alex is really keen on water, on fresh water to everybody and around the world. And Sarah's got her thing. And
0: yeah, that's a good way to run a business, I think, because when you start to connect it with people, it's far more honest. You know, it's, it, it shows that there's some value there that goes beyond it just being about selling homes and doing business.
1: I think a lot of people give, uh, give money to charity and people haven't, uh, and they don't talk about it. Um, I think a lot of people give some money to charity and they talk about it a hell of a lot. Um, and it just feels like it's the right thing to do. And it's always felt that way. Uh, in the Jewish religion, there's something called tzedakah. You're meant to give away X portion, I can't remember what the percentage was, of your income to charity. Maybe that's just vested in me. But I think it's one of the right things to do.
0: I agree. For you now, you must get a lot of DMs from people who are aspiring to come into the industry or look at what you do and see it as being, this is something which I want to do. I want to go into this. It looks like it's all X, Y, and Z. And as you say, it's taken a long time for you to get to where you are today. You know, when you look at where you've started from, what advice would you tend to give someone who is starting out or looking to start out?
1: My advice would be, work in the neighborhood that you know and you know well because that neighborhood knows you and therefore you'll get a chance to do some business that other people won't be able to work for the best person that you possibly can work for because it will speed up your growth rapidly and uh, build your own digital um um uh, handles and document your days growing up through the industry that's what i would be doing and if you're moving from a neighborhood into another neighborhood Work in an office where you get enough deal flow, where you get enough exposure for a few years until you've built your brand over your digital handles and then choose where you want to go. But I would say live and work in the same space. If you're an agent, it's, that's probably the best way to earn a living.
0: This has just been a fantastic conversation that's just provided me, and I'm sure to everyone listening with a lot of insight, um, not only into the industry, but into yourself uh, particularly. In terms of your um, your social links, uh, where everyone can find you, um, website, email, all of that kind of thing. Give me my name.
1: Just da- Daniel, Daniel Daggers over LinkedIn, Facebook, um, Instagram, Twitter. And then please, Team D-D-R-E. That's not Team Dr. Dre. That is Team Daniel Daggers Real Estate. That would be great. <laughs>
0: Uh, I guess that just leaves me to say thank you um, for coming on today and allowing um, this conversation to happen. It's been very insightful for me to be able to sit and pick your brains and understand your story, where you've come from, where you are now, where you're heading. Um, And I'm sure there's a lot of people who are either trying to imitate, emulate, or follow in your path um, that can take some value from this. So, thank Great. you.
1: No, don't be silly. Thank you for the opportunity and the time. Um, and if anyone chooses to build social handles and, um, and it supports them through their working life, then I'm happy.